Citizen Podcast. Welcome to Citizen Podcast. I'm Carrie Kelly. I'm here with one of my favorite people in the world, Mickey Scott Bay Jones, Director of Resilience and Healing Initiatives at Faith Matters Network, to help us tee up this super special series called How We Get Through Collective Resilience in a World on Fire. Welcome, Mickey. Hey, Carrie. I'm so glad we're having this conversation because it feels just in time, right? It's the fall of 2020. We've found ourselves in the midst of a, a, a pivotal election, a global pandemic, economic collapse, escalating action to end the war on Black life and more. We're holding so much at once, even the victories that it can be straining and, and overstimulating on our bodies and spirits. This series features three previously recorded conversations with amazing human beings and movement leaders designed to prepare social justice movements to weave healing and care into our lives and work before, during, and after crisis and big movement moments like this one. Yeah, so this first conversation with Sydney Morgan, Adrian Marie Brown, and Prentice Hempel is about, as my sister and collaborator, Reverend Jennifer Bailey says, how we be together. How are we human together? Flaws and all, mistakes, conflict and pain included. How do we actually work through these very common elements of being human together? So really we wanted to go ahead and start this series off talking about conflict because very few of us wanna start with the conflict. Um, but what I, I loved in this conversation and why I was so grateful to facilitate it is that we started this whole series of conversations on surviving this time when more things are breaking down and breaking open, which is how Prentice described it, and where we're trying to also build on these things that have been revealed in that opening we open by talking about how the thing that can compound the stress of what we're going through is conflict. Conflict with our people, the people we're organizing with. And not just because it's conflict, but because of what that conflict requires of us. So, you know, as I was thinking about this, I was wondering what you, you know, gleaned from the conversation, what you're thinking about what conflict requires of us, Carrie, especially after listening to what Sydney, Adrian, and Prentice had to say. Well, oh my gosh. I, I mean, I don't know that I can distill it down because it was so rich um, yeah. with wisdom and and learning. You know, I think one of um one of the things that really resonated with me was the idea that that conflict is hard because the body tracks back to survival mechanisms. Prentice talked about this, that our, our literal physiology makes it hard to navigate and respond to conflict because we sense um, danger that threatens our sense of safety, belonging, and dignity, right? So any strategies, the illusion of any strategies that we can like think our way out of conflict is really like futile. Mm -hmm. Conflict, it demands embodiment, which I feel like affirmed for me why why it can feel so difficult and uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, and the way they were bouncing off each other, you know, this this idea that 
Um, you know, conflict is in our bodies, even if it's about words that we're saying to one another, right? That we get offended or hurt by something that somebody says. Um, but our brains don't actually know, our bodies don't know, um, you know, kind of the difference between the, you know, needing physical safety, needing to run away from someone and feeling like our belonging is being snatched away from us. Right. And so that, you know, understanding that it, we do have physical body reactions. We have intense brain reactions to feeling like our belonging is being taken away. Um, and, and then, you know, Adrian kind of bounced off of that and talked about how we, um, you know, that we just, we don't often know the difference between like conflict and even abuse, right? Like mm -hmm. we're, we just don't, we don't have any grid for dealing with any of it. And so we're always in this high sense of alarm, right? And we're, cause we're, we know we're dealing with high stakes things. You know, we're trying to protect each other's right to vote and, you know, deal with, you know, uh, the economy crashing and how do we have mutual aid and, and help each other. Right. And so we're in a, already in a state of awareness and, you know, hypervigilance. Uh, and so how do we still then deal with the conflict that's going to happen in the groups of us that are trying to make change? It's a lot. Yeah. And it reminds me of another thing that Adrian said around how we have to design for, for people, for like human people and how sometimes we, we don't do that, right? We design for outcomes, we design for um, uh, for results, right? For transaction. But actually, if we can design for people and actually bringing in that point that you just made, if we can actually design for bodies, like embodied people, um, then we might be able to create the conditions that can hold the discomfort um, and the survival shaping, right? That you're naming. And, you know, this reminds me a lot of your work, Mickey, mm -hmm. around brave space, right? That that really confronts the myth that we can ever guarantee safety, right? Um, because being like what, you know, invoking what um, Reverend Bailey said again, right? How we be together as humans is inevitably going to uh, generate impact, right? And generate conflict. So how do we like design for that in advance? How do we imagine spaces and containers that can in fact hold that? Yeah. And, you know, this was really such a juicy conversation. I don't want to, you know, give anything away before people get it. It's a like a spoiler alert. <laughs> but, um, you know, some of, you know, depending on what like world you're in, you know, um, I would say people might know maybe Adrian or Prentice and maybe not know um, Sydney's name as much. But, um, you know, the thing that I, one of the things that I loved about it was there was a lot of humility. There was a lot of curiosity. Um, none of them came at this as like, well, I'm an expert in conflict resolution. And so you should do the, this that I know works every time. And I know Sydney has led tons of circle processes where she, you know, she's, um, you know, having these difficult conversations with people and with, and with teenagers and entire school systems. And still, you know, um, you know, apprentice working with Black Lives Matter, um, you know, and, and, you know, dealing there with their whole healing justice, you know, um, whole area and just no um, airs of, hey, I know what I'm talking about here. But it felt like this conversation of curiosity and, um, you know, uh, 
really expressing how we're all, we all need to be vulnerable in this and even sharing some of their own personal stories um, of, of having to work through not only conflict, but being harmed by people, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and that we're all going to continue to be harmed no matter how great of a facilitator or organizer or how many campaigns you lead or, you know, how woke you are, we're all going to still be harmed and, and probably harm other people. And so how do we actually, (laughs) how do we navigate that in a way that where we can be healing as we're still trying to create new conditions, you know, and actually change this world we live in? Yeah. And I, I really, I loved, you know, um, the way that Adrian talked about, um, learning in public and how, and how vulnerable, um, that is. And I totally agree. It, it felt to me like, um, the three of them really embodied the spirit mm-hmm. of that, you know, um, cause the conversation felt like really real and raw and humble. Um, but what it means to like learn in public, like how we have to actually like put down our attachment to innocence and self-preservation, mm-hmm. right? And really o- open ourselves up, right? Open our hearts to being impacted, yeah. right? On a relational and an intimate level. Um, and then it reminds me of what Sydney was saying about discernment, right? And how like developing the skill and the capacity to to discern, to navigate the, the messiness, the uncertainty of, of those waters um, is, is maybe the way that we walk that path, right? Yeah. Um, and so I just like, I just got so much from this conversation um, around um, where is there opportunity to build capacity, right? On an individual and collective level. Um, and, and where do we need to be courageous and lean in? Right. And there, you know, are no easy answers. This is definitely right. not a conversation where you come away with the 12 steps to uh, conflict resolution in movement communities. We, you know, like we can't promise that, but um, there were a lot of good places to start, a lot of good questions to um, wrestle with, um, to do your own discernment about what you need to be able to engage in conflict, what your community might need to be vulnerable with each other. And uh, so many names uh, that were shared, they weren't saying all the wisdom, you know, resided in them, but they continually were mentioning other people whose work we should be looking at. And so it's just one of those conversations where, you know, you want to have somewhere, some, some way to be able to capture all that, right? Like to be able to jot down some notes. Um, because I think it will give everybody, it gave me a lot to think about. It's going to give everybody a lot to think about as we continue. Yes. Yeah. Yes. All right. Well, let's get to it. This conversation, y'all, is called Being Human, Holding Complexity, Tension, and Disagreements in Movements. Um, And in the spirit of learning in public, we invite you all to listen with your people. Um, Pull together a pod, listen together. And at the end of this podcast, stay tuned. We've provided some discussion prompts for you to center in your conversation. Um, And so on that note, y'all, enjoy. Today, our topic is um, being human. Um, 
we know that from uh, experience that we people in social justice movements are full, complicated, multidimensional human beings. We make mistakes, we hurt each other. We have different views on things. Uh, we bring our past into the work we're doing today um, in lots of different ways, um, in ways that harm and in ways that um, help. We can be petty, we can be generous, and sometimes all in the same conversation. So how can we operate towards each other with greater care, knowing that we'll mess up, that we'll get into conflict? How do we do that without sacrificing our hearts and our principles? So today we wanna to have a real talk about how to build better group containers that can do conflict constructively, the somatic, um, physical body dimensions of conflict and movement tensions and the practices for when dynamics move from disagreement and differences into harm or abuse. Um, so to help us wrestle with these things, um, we are so blessed to have with us today um, some of what we believe to be our world's and movement's best thinkers and leaders on these subjects. Um, they will be sharing about themselves and stories and, you know, all the, the things they've learned along the way um, into this conversation today, but uh, I'll just give a brief introduction um, and then you'll be able to find the bios in the chat box. Um, we'll be putting those in there. So my name is Mickey Scafe Jones. I'm the Justice Doula. I use the pronouns she, her, um, and diva. And um, I am the Director of Healing and Resilience Initiatives with Faith Matters Network. Um, I'm your facilitator for today's conversation. Uh, and uh, if you're unfamiliar with me, um, I am a movement chaplain, a dancer, nonviolent um, practitioner, um, certified Enneagram teacher, pilgrimage guide, writer, and consultant. Um, and I am joined today by um, Adrian Marie Brown, uh, pronouns she, hers, uh, who is a writer, a pleasure activist, a sci-fi slash Octavia Butler scholar, a facilitator, a speaker, a singer, including a wedding singer, and a doula living in Detroit. Welcome, Adrian. And then we have Prentice Hemphill, and uh, they, them pronouns is a movement facilitator, somatics teacher and practitioner, and a writer living and working at the convergence of healing, individual and collective transformation and political organizing. Thanks Prentice for being here with us today. And last but certainly not least, Sydney Morgan, she, her pronouns, who facilitates coaches and trains educators, community leaders, faith-based leaders, um, and more on racial equity and restorative justice practices, um, and is based in the Seattle area in the Pacific Northwest. Okay, so um, I would love to just start with a round of kind of uh, your thoughts um, on how we get through this time, specifically around conflict, tension, complexity and disagreements in our movements, um, you know, as we're trying to create change, um, but also kind of having to deal with each other and our stuff. 
Um, and I love Adrian, what you talked about recently about like um, learning in public. Like, I think sometimes we're so terrified to, to learn these things and just talk about these things. Um, the dimensions of how we like get through conflict together that isn't just putting people away forever and ever. Um, especially in this time when we're so stressed out from so many other things anyway, how can we actually do this stuff together? So um, I would love for whoever wants to go first. Do we have someone? Or else I'm just going to pick someone. Francis. I feel like Adrian was coming in there. So I just want to make sure, Adrian, were you coming in? I was well, I felt like I was being called, but then when, when it opened back up, I was like, oh, no, I would definitely start with Prentice. And then I can go, I need to go put my turtle back in their little turtle thing. So I'm going to do that. Okay. All right. I'm being a with a turtle. You start. Thank you. Um, it, first, I feel really grateful to be with you all. It, it's always important for me these days as we're doing this online stuff to just kind of feel for the space that we're all creating together. Um, even though we're in different places, different things are happening in our homes, um, to just feel that there's something unique that we are creating just by arriving in this same virtual space together. Um, so I'm feeling that and also feeling for, like feeling for the connection that's here. Um, there's really a lot to say, and so I'm um, not going to say it all. I'm just going to uh, touch on some points that feel important. Um, one is that exactly what you said, Mickey, it feels like in this moment, there's so much pressure in a lot of ways is how I think about it. There's pressure on us. There's pressure on the configurations, the kind of human, I call them human organic structures that we create, our families, our organizations, um, there's pressure. And things are in receiving that pressure breaking apart. There's fissures being created. Um, and this, this conversation about conflict and the skillful navigation of conflict feels increasingly uh, important and um, precarious. It's challenging to figure out how to really move through conflict well in this moment when it, when it both feels like and is that so much is at stake um, for each of us. So I think that kind of pressure adds to the pressure that lives inside of our conflicts. It's like, what's at stake in this moment? What's at stake if you, um, you and I don't align? Does it mean that, you know, survival is so up, I guess is what I'm saying in this moment. It feels like it's one of the central questions in this moment. And it, 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 it is infused in how we are in conflict um, in whatever configurations we're in. So I, I just want to name that. And I, I think in that also, Um, normalize or just say that that's part of what I'm assessing is happening. It's part of what I'm experiencing as someone who is holding a lot of conflict in organizations, is asked to step in. A lot of conflict in organizations, a lot of conflict in community. Um, there's, there are thematic breaks that I see happening and um, they feel important for us to really understand and get underneath. Um, the other thing that I want to say from kind of a somatic perspective, and I'll talk a little bit more about um, 
how conflict shows up in us or how we show up to conflict is that um, it is really hard for the body to distinguish between um, life or death um, and what can happen inside of the conflicts that we experience. It's really hard for our body and I mean the whole system to make a distinction between um, and, and it's a gradient scale, right? There's, it's hard for the body to say, oh, you, you don't align in my values. You, our values don't align and um, I'm not allowed to be here. I don't belong fundamentally. That I really wanna say that, that the reason why conflict is so hard is because our bodies are tracking this back to whether or not we can belong, whether or not it's safe enough to be here, whether or not we can um, maintain our dignity and be in a relationship that actually tracks back to some very real survival mechanisms inside of us. So it's not just, oh, I, I'm not good at conflict because I'm not good at it. it. It actually is hard for us to be in conflict and to make the distinction and to make the moves that allow the conflict to be really generative. So that, um, uh, I think the next thing I really wanna say about conflict is that um, I, I've been asked to do trainings on conflict and people will say, you know, um, can you talk to me about being conflict avoidant or conflict avoidant? Or there's some people in the organization that are aggressive in conflict and there's some people that are avoidant in conflict. And I think initially when I started doing conflict work, that was kind of the frame I was carrying around also. Um, and it's a helpful one to understand our own reactivity and what we're what the strategy is that we're employing inside of conflict. What are we trying to get out of it? And each of those approaches is a strategy. Um, but fundamentally, every strategy we employ around conflict, whether it is avoiding it, pretending like things aren't happening, trying to um, quell any disagreement um, kind of prematurely, if we think we're good at conflict, which a lot of us could be like, oh no, I love conflict, I'm ready for it right now. And that's not necessarily a generative stance, right? It's not necessarily a stance of deep listening or understanding. Um, but all of those approaches or strategies fundamentally um, do avoid the thing that conflict in order to be generative needs, which is vulnerability, which is the ability to really reveal what it is we care about and um, reach for understanding and have curiosity with other folks. So it doesn't matter really what your strategy is. And a lot of times there's a hierarchy of strategy, uh, a way that strategies get racialized also, um, the way that strategies map on power dynamics. And we pretend that something is better than the other. Um, but really the, the goal of any conflict in order to be transformative is the experience of vulnerability. And vulnerability will produce, um, it doesn't mean that everything's going to go back to how it was, or everybody's going to feel good, but it will reveal um, where boundaries might need to be, where connection is possible, what agreements we really, really long for in order to move forward. So um, to me in facilitation, the, the goal is always to understand what is the reactivity we're experiencing and what does it need to be vulnerable? What does it need to reach for understanding? What does it need to be honest in order to move forward? Um, and I think that, I think the last thing I'll say here, um, I don't know how I'm doing on time, um, but I'm good, okay. So the last thing I'll say is that, um, what, the, what was the last thing I was gonna say? Um, 
Um, well, Lord, it has slipped my mind. Look at that. We're talking about vulnerability. Come on, Adrian. I appreciate you. <laughs> yes. Um, this this friendship. Um, yeah, that it it just it really requires. It's not coming to me, but I'm gonna say something. Um, uh, <laughs> oh, I got it. I got it. That it's actually um, in this moment when things are breaking apart and breaking down, um, we can. I know that I sometimes get fearful at at what's being lost and a lot is being lost and a lot is going to be lost in some ways and there's also this opportunity to really break down to what is actually important what is actually life-sustaining um what what actually is the the rhythm and the the promise inside of life i think con inside of each conflict is an opportunity is a gift and um I think it's been a long time since we probably oriented towards life as an opportunity to change, um, to be in our growth as opposed to projecting where we are or status or all those things. And I think that um, as things break down, it's an opportunity for more authenticity um, with each other. It's an opportunity to be in the kind of struggles. Like one of the things Adrian modeled that Mickey, you spoke to was like, how do we learn in public? How do we um, take a risk and um, in in the kind of exchange, understand where we actually are, which may be moved by the interaction. It may stay in the same place with the interaction, but that actually might be some of the, some of what conflict is trying to teach us about the, the possibility and the rhythm of life. Yeah. I mean, you're already saying things that are making me uncomfortable. So <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> You know, I mean, the vulnerability, oh, I, that is so difficult um, for me, uh, especially in a time of conflict, you know, especially in a time that feels like you said, so many things are breaking open to then have to be vulnerable in one more space um, with the people who, you know, maybe you hope you only have to have a certain amount of vulnerability with to do the thing. Whew. So it's already <laughs> like getting under my skin, which is good because that's what I need. Um, I tweeted the other day that that's when I listened to you and Mia Birdsong and I avoided that podcast for like a couple of weeks because I was like, actually, I, I'm, I don't want to have this conversation. Thank you very much. And <laughs> I needed to, I needed to hear it so that I would start to process the things I needed to process. So thank you for opening us up with that so we could start that process right now in this conversation. Um, Adrian, what about you? What are you thinking? So many things. Um, I'm really, first of all, really grateful just to be invited to be a part of the conversation. And yes, as y'all have mentioned, I'm like all up, this is like what I wanna study right now and understand. But I want to start with the tarot card that I got today. Um, I've gotten back into my movement tarot card practice, which is like I pull a card each day that's like, what do we who are in movements for social, political, and environmental change need to be mindful of today? Or like, what can we be aware of today? And the card I pulled today is the storm, which is in a lot of um, tarot decks is called the tower, but it's like the... Kali, it's the destructive, it's the moment uh, when things are falling apart. 
And I pulled it from the slow holler deck and the description said, embrace change and chaos, release attachment, open to profound clarity, align yourself with the energy of creative destruction, welcome the winds of renewal. Storms have the capacity to bring to the surface what we have tried to submerge. Drop your defenses and move towards what scares you. Working with the storm rather than against it means siding with the future rather than the past. So that's, that's their description. But it was like, that's all I'm trying to say. So I was like, let me just bring that in right here. Because for me, you know, this, the tarot has become a deep spiritual practice for me. It's a way that I call on ancestors, like to get as direct with me as possible, right? Where I'm like, can y'all tell what, what, can y'all tell me what I'm supposed to do? And that card really represents what I think is the moment that we're in and also what we need to do inside that moment, which is how do we keep moving ourselves towards the future? And I think there's a tendency to accidentally romanticize the past instead of honoring it. Like what we need to do, what we should do is honor this. Our ancestors knew a lot about conflict. There's a lot we could learn from them our ancestors also held a lot of beliefs that did not include the complexity that we now know ourselves to be. So I think constantly we have to be figuring out how do we pull the best practices and honor what our ancestors knew. Also understanding that they were not at the level of direct interconnected relationship across difference that we now are. And how do we move towards a future um, in which we can be in all our complexity with the best practices and some new practices. And I think that's where we are. Where I enter the conversation is I'm obsessed with visionary fiction and how do we unlock our radical imagination in order to be able to um, imagine what we will then create, right? I do believe that we are the ones who, who co-create by imagining. And I've said this before, I learned it from Intelligent Mischief, but we are living inside someone else's imagination. And I think a lot of our conflicts come from trying to survive inside of someone else's imagination. It's like, this doesn't make sense. It doesn't resonate inside of me. You're benefiting from this imagination. You know, like as a light skin, as a mixed race person, there's benefits that I receive because someone else's imagination of whiteness and proximity to whiteness being a good thing, which is not my felt experience of it. My felt experience of it is, whiteness pulls you away from the belonging to blackness, <laughs> but that's not how things play out. And so I get so interested in like, well, what would it take to imagine something else racially? What would it take to imagine something else in terms of gender? And I think we're practicing that, but I think our conflicts come as we're trying to navigate our way into our own imagining. I am an emergent strategist. So I think nature has a lot to offer us about where do we get stuck? Where do we get stagnant? Where do we eddy off to the side and no longer flow? Where do we get into feeding frenzies? And this is, you know, you both were talking about my learning in public. So for folks who are on the call who are like, what y'all talking about, Adrian learning in public? I don't even know her. Um, in July, I just came back from a six month sabbatical being away and I returned into movement. And right away, what struck me so clearly was everybody's fighting. And everyone is in 
call outs and they're, they're happening constantly. And it was really overwhelming. And so I wrote a piece about this, like, it feels unthinkable, but why does it feel like we're coming at each other around everything all the time? And is this the way? And then I got a lot of people like, yeah, thank you for saying that. And then I got some folks, people I deeply respected who were like, hold up, we need that strategy of calling each other out, calling each other in. Um, we need to call out abuse and call out harm. Like, this is what we have. This doesn't involve the state. You know, what are you talking about? And because transformative justice and abolition is fundamentally about how do we resolve conflict? How do we end harm without relying on the state? So I had to learn, oh, what is it that I'm actually trying to talk about? What is it I'm actually feeling? And what I learned was we have a lot of conflict that's getting addressed as if it's abuse or as if it's something else. And we're not addressing our conflict in a healthy way. We are terrified of turning and facing conflict with each other. And it's easier to yell it out to the public than to sit face to face in the somatic experience of direct confrontation, direct not liking each other, direct non-alignment, direct contradiction, direct, right, difference. So I, I've been learning that. I'm actually going to be publishing that piece, but deeply edited. I pulled out everything in it that folks were like, this is triggering and confusing. I was like, that's not the conflict I want to create in people, right? I'm not, that's not the argument I want to have. I want to talk about our behavior. The final piece I want to say just as we start into it is I'm a pleasure activist. And for me, I think about how, how do we access joy? And folks are like, well, conflict is not a place for joy. I still haven't gotten there either. I'm not in the place where I'm like, yeah, that was a fun ass fight. But <laughs> I have felt the joy of being heard, the joy of um, when something was festering, actually naming it and together with someone else lancing that thing and allowing it to just be open and then allowing it to heal. I have felt the joy of challenging assumptions and then being seen beyond the assumptions. I have felt the joy of being given time to recover my, you know, when you talked about resilience as the frame of this, resilience takes some time. And inside that time, a lot has to happen. But I have felt the joy of being given enough time. My sabbatical was a joyful experience because my community that loved me, my coworkers, they gave me time to go grieve and heal and feel and recover now I came back into this mess, so who knows? I'm going to need another one. I think we need to be staggering. But I think about our ancestors and how hard they worked with so little time to recover from the constant trauma of their conditions and how now when we're in a different scenario, we recreate that same level of constant, nonstop, urgent labor with no time to feel and I wonder if it's because we haven't quite learned that yet, like we inherited and we've just, our bodies have learned to labor a certain way inside of capitalism, which requires us to produce a certain way. And so I'm just curious, like, oh, what, I'm really into the nap ministry. <laughs> you know, I'm really like, how do we slow down enough to be resilient? Um, so those are some of my thoughts that I jotted down. I hope I did them justice. But I really want us to be in a conversation on abolition, like conflict resolution is a part of our abolitionist practice every day. And all of these are just components of that. So, yeah. Mm, thank you, Adrian. 
Mm, so delicious already. So many juicy things to be thinking about. And I'm just so excited to have the three of you in conversation. I, y'all know, <laughs> I worked really hard to make sure that the three of you could all be on a call together because I knew it was right. Um, and so I love that now we're going to go into um, Sydney and her wisdom because Sydney, you, the way you um, bring people together in circle process and um, restorative justice, and people always want to talk about the children are our future, yada, 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 but you work in schools, you work in communities who are saying they're committed to restorative justice um, and to new and different and, and bringing forth ancient ways of dealing with conflict. Um, but it's often hard when we actually sit down to try and do it. Um, you know, there are people now who are just like, forget that restorative justice stuff. We tried it in our school for a year and it didn't work. You know, so I'm thinking about, you know, Adrian, you're saying it takes time, <laughs> like we need time. Um, and so I just think we're, we're just beginning the practice. Um, so Sydney, I would love for your initial thoughts on all this. Okay. <laughs> I'm just still sort of drinking in uh, all the wisdom that just came out of the last 10 minutes uh, or so. Um, just honored and grateful to be in this space uh, with you all. Um, I think I, I think I want to touch on first what's been really resonant for me since we've been in quarantine land, and that's been um, cultivating wisdom. I've been thinking about that a lot, and I find that in the things that I've been reading and journaling that for me, wisdom is tied to insight, and insight is the power to see into something. And um, I feel like now for me, those are tied together. And so I wonder in the space where we're trying to um, do really good work and uh, also know that conflict is a part of that, um, how, do we, how do we grow in wisdom from that? How do we learn from our interactions and processes with each other? Um, how do we do more understanding? How do we do more listening as a skill? Just all the things that you both have said. Um, and so I'm, I'm really sitting in that sort of intersection of wisdom and insight and what does that mean when we're doing conflict, when we're in it, when we're supporting folks trying to, trying to repair or be in a process. And so I feel like it's such adaptive um, <clears throat> work that we're talking about that it makes sense to me and I, if I had a penny for every time a, a system structure said we tried and it didn't work, I would be so wealthy at this moment. Uh, and so I think part of my journey has been um, just uh, getting in space with folks and, um, you know, really sort of digging at what's, what's present, what's, what is, what's really the issue about. Uh, oftentimes I find that it shows up one way and then we get into process and there's all the stuff, right? Um, layered. Um, and so for me in terms of RJ work with schools and, and even in the community space at, at this moment, 
um, there's been a lot, there's been a huge surge of conversation about it in recent space. Um, and I'm, I'm seeing more folks drawn to wanting uh, healing and wanting more understanding um, and, and wanting to, wanting to know, like, how do I, how do I um, repair in this space? What does that look like for me? Um, you know, what does it look like for if I'm the one who's caused harm or, or I've been impacted by harm? What does all of that mean? What does all that mean for us? And getting in a circle and talking, like, that's not how we socially construct conflict around here. So uh, you're asking me to do something that feels completely off and, and, and different. Um, and, and yet, for me, it's about trusting the ancient process of it, um, finding that in, in all the contexts that I've had the opportunity to see restorative uh, justice practice work, I've gone in going, are we sure? Um, <laughs> for myself even, um, but uh, coming out going, oh yeah, trust the process uh, of it. It's, it's one that um, has, has worked over a long time. Uh, does it work for everything? Ah, that's a question to keep learning from. I don't know. Um, I'm gonna let question be teacher. <laughs> uh, and I'm and I'm gonna lean to that. Um, I I do know there's value in it. I do know it's a it's a practice that we can definitely begin transformation. Um, and if we're willing, if we want to, if it's if we're willing to be vulnerable, just all the things you all have said. So, um, but wisdom that's the piece for me. Wisdom calls to us, understanding screams at us. Like that's what's been sort of in my space. Um, and what if we did cultivate wisdom? What would that mean for us in terms of more understanding of each other, um, more ways to come into conflict and be okay, hold hands while we fight uh, kind of thing? Um, what would that mean for us? Uh, and so, so I'm really sort of in that, in that processing space. Um, of looking at conflict in that way. Um, so I don't, I don't, that's, that's what I have to offer at this moment. <laughs> I'm just sitting with that. Thank you, Sydney. Um, and I think it's just good to, to um, like hear people be in conversation who this is part of your work, right? Like part of your work is actually helping people repair from harm or be, uh, work through conflict with one another. And we have questions, like we still have questions. It's never about, um, you know, people who have acquired all of the knowledge and no longer struggle. And then the other people who just need to learn. Like we continue to be human and to be searching and to be learning while we're still supporting other folks doing this work. So, and sometimes we're the supporting person and sometimes we're the ones in the midst of the conflict. Um, and so uh, even that modeling in this conversation, I think is, um, is really helpful. Um, so I'm going to um, go into like some of the questions that came in before and um, there's some doozies. So we're going to see what we got here. Um, okay. So uh, this first one, it says, um, 
I've been involved in activist circles where people are transphobic, misogynistic, colorist, etc. Some people also have defended sexual abusers. How do we work in these spaces? It seems like it would be irresponsible to work with people because their ideology, or I'll put in their, their behaviors, um, will shape how they do activist work and what they're working toward. However, I understand that some people develop this ideology because they themselves have lived in oppressive spaces. Uh, spaces. How do we reconcile these differences to work toward a productive goal? So just starting with an easy one. I have, yeah, I'm like, great. So this is how you do it. Um, So one of the things that I have found to be really um, helpful with with this kind of question is something that Tanya Lee brought into Movement for Black Lives space a few years ago, which was a really clear definition of principled struggle. And inside of that definition, so the overarching thing is that we're struggling for the sake of deeper understanding and more freedom for all of us. We're, we're struggling for the sake of something much larger than ourselves. And Inside of the points, one of them is consider that this may or may not be the container to hold what you have to bring. This may or may not be the right container. And so I think when we look at like movements as a whole, like mass, 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 yeah, there's all, like we are inside of these systems of oppression. And I think we have to be able to think systemically and we have to also understand that we're swimming in the waters of all of the things we also recognize are harmful and that we want to undo. So they're inside of us. They're not purely external systems, which would be so much easier. It would be so much easier if we knew that all the phobias were over there and we were this pristine, perfect beings. But I'm going to leave Prentice, hopefully you can talk about the innocence thing. But for this piece, I want to just focus on that container piece because I find a lot of times you're trying to be in a container with someone who doesn't honor your dignity, doesn't respect your existence, doesn't believe in your right to organize, to take up space. That's not the right container either for them or for you. And so there need to me, I think it's okay to go smaller, to get a small crew of people with whom you actually feel political home, organize together, learn together, study together and grow something that has a strong center of Here's what we are. Here's who we are. Here's what we care about. A lot of times when people are like, we went in this space and there were these transphobic people there. I'm like, okay, hold up. What was happening in the invitation to that space, right? Um, Was it just like everybody black, come here, right? Which I think we saw some of that with Black Lives Matter. It was just like everybody black, come on in. And then all the transphobic, homophobic black folks came and they were like, this is for us too. And it's like, okay, we need to slow it down. We need to get clear, what is a black feminist lens? What is a black queer abolitionist lens? What do do we mean by the us that we are inviting people to, right? Because I think that's the core part of it is, I'm not saying if you're transphobic, you'll never have a place here. But when, if I can see your transphobia is showing, there's some unlearning, there's some learning, there's some loving, there's some self-seeing that needs to happen before this will feel like a true belonging. Because it can't be, oh, you can come belong, but then I'll have to not belong. That's not how it's going to work. It has to be, we're going to grow a space where we can all belong. And that means we're going to have to let go of some old ideas that were trained into us to keep us divided. So to me, that's the piece, is finding that container to start from and then letting your container grow. I think sometimes we 
are scared to start small because the problems are so big. It feels like we immediately have to go straight to mass movement level. And it's like so urgent, we have to be huge. But a lot of small pockets of projects that are aligned can create a mass effect. A lot of black people in small projects who feel their dignity creates a different black dignity in public. I think that's good news. So I also think that when you have squad, you can challenge um, phobia, you can challenge harmful behavior, you can challenge abuse in a different way than if you're in a group trying to go one-to-one with it. So I, I think that that's big. Like I feel like I've watched BYP 100 be a major culture shifter and cl- they just pull people over. Cause I'm like, y'all made it look irresistible to be a black feminist, queer abolitionist. Like it looks like so fly, so smart, so coherent, so good, but they didn't start as a huge mass movement, right? They started smaller and they allowed it to build. And I just want to point people towards Patrice Colors, who was one of the co-founders of BLM, just put out a piece on like the seven years of learning and growth of what it looked like to start with the hugest possible container and how she has come and found the right container. But I just think there's so much, again, that learning in public, what, is the, what are the right containers where your whole self doesn't have to be denied and you don't have to be trying to organize next to someone who has abused or harmed you because your community doesn't know how to hold that yet. How do we make more room? for people who have caused harm to find containers where they can do their healing and their learning and also get to be a part of movement. Cause that's it. You know, I'm in that boat. I don't want to throw them out, but I do want to throw them over to the healing, the healing room. I'm like, Y'all go over there for a little bit. Granted. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, I'm, um, kind of sitting in a, in a, a, another place, I think, inside of this question and um, digging in. And I I think it's, I think one of the things I want to say off top is like, I don't always feel clear, like there's a hard and fast rule around some of these things. And it's not that I don't feel clear, it's that I don't feel like it's easy to say. Um, And what I mean by that is that um, I feel like so many of the points that Adrian just clarified and offer are, it's like, it's, what are the conditions that we're in, the container um, that, so when we're talking about people being homophobic, transphobic, um, what Adrian's point about how we embody all of these things in some ways, and if we're up to the work of organizing, that we often run against this um, challenge of like, oh, part of organizing is um, is figuring out how to join up with another person and say, here's a possibility for our, our liberation, um, and it it's a it's a there's a complexity to that move. There's a complexity to that invitation of organizing that we don't, you know, it's we can't end up only organizing the people who we agree with or who hold our same values um, right now. Um, but it ends up being a question of what is the, what is the orientation of the folks that we're organizing or ourselves as we're being organized and developing? What is our orientation towards learning and transformation? And what does the container, like Adrian was talking about, what does the container support embody um, 
do you have the infrastructure support clarified values in order to have the kinds of conversations that are necessary to have in order to um, get clear on what the political line is of any organization um, what will what can and cannot happen so you know i think about if i'm really let me see how do i say this um for me, a lot of coming to movement was um, kind of leaving the homophobia and transphobia of my family um, and trying to find a place that was, quote unquote, felt more safe for me to be, where I could be more of myself. And I got a lot of that inside a movement and I felt healed around, in many ways, around who I could be in the world. And then you run up against the, the barrier of like, oh, but I want my family here, you know, kind of metaphorically. I want, I want my people here too. I don't want it to be a place where I have to leave. And, you know, I don't talk to my family. I don't talk to my people about what I'm doing. I want it to be a place that, that can in and of itself expand enough so that we all um, can be here. So um, I'm, I'm saying that to say that there is some nuance there for me around um, what, where is the, where is the person's orientation towards learning, shifting, understanding, and that creates a certain amount of possibility. And then where is my orientation and where is my capacity? Where is my support to be in those kinds of challenging relationships too? And that might not be where I'm at. That might not be what I'm, what I need to do, want to do. It might not be a part of my journey right now. Um, but if it is, how can I have an orientation that allows me to maintain my dignity, not compromise my dignity or boundaries, and also be in um, that space that Adrian was talking about? If I have enough around me, that support to to challenge and be in that struggle with someone, how is that possible too? So I think, and I'm I'm not talking. I'm talking explicitly around. Um, kind of the phobias that we were talking about, how those get embodied, and um, there's nuance there for me. I absolutely am not losing my dignity. It's just not what I do at this big age of mine. Um, so how do I have also have that and and know that I'm going to be in relationships with people that hold all kinds of values, and what is it that I'm actually um, looking for? So. That's that's the nuance for me. There's no hard, fast, clear. It's more conditional and it's more of these questions that Adrian was pointing to, support, container, and then how am I discerning people's orientation and their own development? Can I say a quick thing on what you just said too? I think there's a real distinction of who we're organizing with and who we are organizing. And for me, I think holding that distinction sometimes helps me that there's a crew that I'm organizing with that I expect to hold me whole. And then there's folks that I'm organizing who I'm like, y'all are, you know, white Southern family members or y'all are, um, you know, black folks that I came up with in the military world who I'm like, you know, I, I know that your politic is different. I know it might be different in some places. I want to organize you towards bring you into this invitation. But I think sometimes we don't hold that distinction of who we are 
in political home with and who we are trying to invite towards political home and that there actually can be distinctions in how we hold those two groups. So I wanted to make that clear too, because I'm like the container in which you are doing your organizing, you do want that alignment and that's where you have those battles and you're like, I will be seen whole. We need to figure this out. When you're having the big rally and you're trying to invite everybody, that's where you don't go running up on someone like, I see this about you. You know, that's not how we get people to come in deeper. And Maurice Mo Mitchell recently said, we want to have a low bar for entry and high standards of conduct um, within. And I thought that was really beautiful too. It's like, how do we get people come in? But then the deeper you are in, the higher we hold each other's standards. So just want to throw that in there before Sydney brings the brilliance. Sydney, what you thinking? Um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm hanging on part of the question around, um, and I, I don't really have an answer, but I'm hanging on this. I'm hanging on the part of the question around um, someone naming someone who's caused sexual harm and keeping them sort of in the space. So, um, and I hear that 110%. This is not a disagreement. I'm going to share a story. Um, I, I studied restorative justice work here, but it crept down into my heart when I had my own process. And I had my own process with someone in my family who harmed me sexually for years as a child. And I wouldn't necessarily recommend this for all, but I would say that for my journey in this work, I needed that. I needed to have that process with this person. And I also um, needed to speak for the child who didn't have a voice. And I didn't have a high expectation going into the process. I didn't even expect an apology. Um, but what I got was to say what I needed to say. Um, and for me, again, not everybody's different, but for me, I, I needed to be able to keep the memories I had. I needed to be able to, I needed to be able to have a space to have that person sit in what I had been sitting in for years. Um, and we had court. We did a justice piece. We went to, <laughs> we went to court. We did all of that. Um, but that didn't help me. And so for me, I'm hanging on that piece because it's reminding me of why I came into this work and what was a piece for me that really shifted. Um, and I, again, not, not, uh, encouraging folks to like, you know, bring people who have caused harm in, the, in any other way sort of into your space and be okay. There's a process here I'm talking about <laughs> that took years to get to, uh, took years to get to, um, took years to process forgiveness. Um, and because this person is a family member, I see this person. Um, and I wanted a different way of being in my family. I wanted a different way of engaging with this person. Um, and so I feel like um, 
there's there's more to sort of discuss and study around discernment. I, I love that. I love how you were naming that, um, Prentice. And I just, that's such a big deal. Discernment is such a big deal that I don't feel like we talk about enough. And I, I feel that's also tied to wisdom. And when we are passionate and engaged in activist work, we need discernment. That's the flashlight in the dark. <laughs> that's like, you know, like I need to see what's up in here before I walk in here, you know, um, and who's with me to your point, Adrian. So I'm just sort of sitting with that as like a, a, a place of, of where we then begin to talk about healing and where we begin to talk about restoration and the process of that. Um, yeah. So that's sort of where I'm at, just appreciating what you both shared and sort of what's connecting for me. And Mickey, can I underline that real fast? Yeah, yeah. I feel like Sydney just gave us a word here of like, you know, we talk about this moment being a moment of so much conflict. This is a moment of discernment. Like that's, that's what this moment is inviting all of us to develop into. This is a moment of, it could be a moment of things falling apart and terrible things, yes. But it is a moment of discernment. So that that word and just bringing that forward, it just, that, that to me is the orientation. How are you developing your discernment? So that we're not, I think someone in the chat box told about, talked about um, binaries. It's like, yes, the discernment <laughs> is what we are trying to develop instead. So we can we can live into the, the nuance of this reality. So anyways, I just... I wanted to do two snaps in a circle for that. I was feeling the same churchy experience. I was like, discernment. Yes, because that piece for me too is a discernment versus fear. Like Malkia Surreal, Malkia Devish Surreal and I have been in this conversation a lot lately because a lot of times I think we think what we're scared of and like responding with fear, that is discernment somehow. Like that scares me, that experience scares me, those people scare me. That's not discernment. And right now it's like, we're actually trying to discern between what takes us back into chains and what takes us forward into freedom. And it's in every day, in every choice, in, in how we deal with the parts that are scary. How, Sydney, what you just shared, I am sitting over here moved to tears by your vulnerability and, and the discernment even of how you shared it that you were like, this may not be for everyone, but for me, I needed this. I feel like we don't even allow each other the space for that. I needed, I needed this. And that everyone may not, or everyone not, that's not the path, but you needed it. And I, as someone who am recovering from my own harms, I can hear that it opens a way. And then I have to discern for myself, how do I want to take from your vulnerability, how can I take a lesson from my own discernment? And all of that just is a slowing down. And, and what you said about it took years to feel this and then years to feel the next part. And now it's years. All during those years, you are in shared space with that person. I think we don't speak enough about that, all of that. So I'm really grateful. Good job, Mickey Scott Bay. Um, <laughs> Well, I, you know, I'm having all kinds of thoughts about um, all things, all the things, but um, just about time, right? Like, I feel like right now, 
we often want a, a quick resolution, right? Somebody does something or harm from the past is brought to light. And, and so it's like, okay, I need you to say today what side you're on. I need to know by the end of today what your statement is. And it's like, I, sometimes I feel like, like, are we giving even, you know, those who have been harmed the time to know what they want to do? Like maybe coming to the table right now and sitting across from that person today is not what they want. And so I wonder about that, about us just slowing down and, and having the d time to, to sort through our own discernment. And I wonder about talking with elders, um, you know, like, because what I like to think about sometimes is um, I like to imagine, you know, the Southern freedom movement and just all the like interpersonal, you know, funky things that were happening between them and who's sleeping with who and who's who fought somebody in the parking lot that day. And like, I love thinking about all that. Um, and, you know, because I think what we do is like you were saying in the beginning, um, Adrian, about romanticizing, like we just think about the civil rights movement is just like everybody walking down the street together, you know, so happy. And I'm like, they like they hated each other, y'all, <laughs> you know? And so I wonder what it would be like to sit down with our elders and, and really ask those questions um, in ways that would really elicit those deeper conversations, you know? Um, yeah, and I want a Gladys Addie type level too, right? Right. Like, I'm just like, I want to sit down with them at that auntie level and just be like, let me give y'all the Ciroc and you take, yeah. you have your shoes and your fan and like, and you know, mirror how did you figure out that love is the way but what y'all go through on the path because <laughs> right? i also wonder if like conflict is like conflict resolution is more for those who we are intimate with you know what i'm saying like it's not for the big mass organizing um reverend dr alexia Salvatera, my madrina she talks about you know um kind of uh the difference between correct line uh organizing like when you have to believe all the same things and when you just are or when you're just like organizing around something big but you may have very different beliefs about other other things right and so maybe this maybe kind of re conflict resolution is 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 more intimate it's smaller but it's not necessarily for everybody you know like i think about the way you talk about it in emergent strategy adrian and it's very it feels very intimate. Some of the things you talk about in there are you, you're not going to do that in a room of, of 50 people mm -hmm. who all come to the mass BLM meeting. That's not going to happen. Well, I'll say, you know, Miriam Kaba has been a teacher of mine on all things related to being alive. But one of the things that, you know, I felt I understood this from a mediator perspective that often I'm in a large room, conflict is unfolding or someone you know, someone just tweeted someone else did harm and those people are in the room. And as a facilitator and as a mediator, I've got to address it. And my move is always, how do we get to a smaller container, small enough where these where intimacy is possible? And Miriam Kaba talks about it for transformative justice. So if we're not going to engage in the pleasure of punishment of each other, and if we're not going to just try to restore to conditions that already were unequal, but if we're actually going to be transformative, that happens at community level. And community level is not going to scale up to the carceral system level. And when every time she says that, it does something to me because I realize that I'm always trying to figure out, well, how are we going to scale up something for all humans everywhere? And 
that gets me ahead of myself in my own imagination. But when she says that, it calms me back down to like, oh, I'm not even, that's not even my responsibility is trying to figure out the scale that everyone needs to use, but I can figure out the scale that, that me and my folks can use, that movement can use. And if many, many, many of us are all in those experiments, then that will, that will create a sea change of what's possible for justice. And I love the idea that there's many experiments. And I love the idea of having an international lens too, that our US context for race, gender, culture, everything is not the world's context for it. So we need to address conflict as it relates and harm and abuse patterns. Like we are dealing with abuse patterns that have a root in slavery. It's a very unique context that we're dealing with it here. Someplace else might, you know, Sweden might have a different process. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like that doesn't mean harm doesn't happen there, but it's just a different legacy that they have to contend with as they figure out their strategies moving forward. And as somatic bodies, we're always between our, our past and our particular future. So yeah, but I think Miriam Kaba is someone who I would point everyone to if you haven't engaged her work, Fumbling Towards Repair. She just did that workbook with Shira Hassan. She's on a billion podcasts. You can hear her directly. She's written for the New York Times, but she's someone who, in terms of the abuse and harm, sexual harm, that component of it is really helping. Um, yeah. All right. Well, um, I'm going to do one uh, another one of these kind of questions that came in earlier. And this is the somatics, um, more in the somatics direction. So Prentice, this might um, specifically be for you. But um, how, do you, how do you all navigate the somatic wisdom of a person's need to bodily express, um, for example, to cry, to rage, to run, to fold, in order to heal in the container of a meeting or a webinar that wasn't designed for that purpose? Um, like in the case of stopping a conversation, if somebody's visibly activated or hyper or hypo arousal, um, communicating um, with people who don't use vocabularies of somatics or trauma studies. Um, yeah, there you go. Mm -hmm. That's like 85 questions. I just want to say there's like so many questions because all of those are different ways that people can respond. Um, so how do I do that in inside of a space where that is not designed to happen? Um, well, first I'm going to answer from a kind of conflict when I am facilitating conflict and then I'll say something about in other spaces where it's not necessarily expected. Um, one is that when I facilitate conflict, I tell people on the top, I say, um, in terms of what my role is, I see my role as, as maintaining the dignity of all the folks involved. That's what I care most about. Um, and that doesn't mean that I'm gonna say, you can't be upset or you can't feel what you feel. But sometimes people try to tone police or tell people to quiet down and. And there are moments where you're like, okay, you're now trying to punish in this moment. And that's actually not the orientation. And you're trying to actually fundamentally diminish the, the dignity of this person or have them um, experience shame or loss of dignity or all these things. 
um, because sometimes we're trying to expel our own emotional experience and, and, and have somebody, um, yeah, it, it, it kind of can become an insatiable um, impulse. And um, so that can happen. But for the most part, if somebody gets upset, I don't, I'm not like, okay, we keep our voices at this level. We only talk like this. We don't get, have big feelings. Um, I allow what's real to emerge. And then part of your role as a facilitator is to be like, what does this really mean? Or what are you, what are you, what, is, what are you struggling to say? Or what are you afraid to say? Or did you hear what is inside of what this person is saying? What they're really communicating to you. Um, so in that way, I give a lot of room for emotion because you have to let things come. You have to let them be here. Or you're just having a kind of intellectual or performative experience. You have to let it get activated and let it be there. So I think that's one part of the question is like, um, and, and I think as a, as a facilitator, and yeah, I'm curious what other folks feel, you have to increase your own capacity to allow because people, things will come and you might be like, oh, I remember I was working as a, th as a therapist once and one of my clients got up cursing, yelling at me, standing over me. And I was like, now, what is really going on? How am I really going to respond? Am I going to like run? You know, real things happen. Um, so our work is to do our work so that we increase the capacity to be present with a myriad of responses. So I think that's one thing from a facilitator role um, that is part of my commitment. As I step into and commit to this role, I'm also committing to doing my ongoing work to create the kind of emotional capacity that's necessary to be with. Um, and that's, that's the other side of the work. It's not just showing up. So um, that, and I think in terms of, in terms of um, uh, kind of um, emotiveness in spaces where it's not necessarily designed to be, the thing that's complex about that for me is that sometimes that's where things need to show up. <laughs> sometimes there's a whole lot of things that need to, to be disruptive and appear and um, shake things up. Sometimes that's really necessary. Sometimes we've been suppressing, collectively suppressing emotions or content that we don't want to deal with. And sometimes they have to come up in, in unruly ways. And again, discernment, like how do I know if this is something that is, is moving forward to tell the truth about something? Um, and then there's some ways that some of us have been taught to use our emotionality to gain power and control and uh, a context too. So that's also part of what's happening. That's why I said, I think there's 86 questions in there because it, everything is contextual. Every, it matters in what context something is coming forward. Is it being used to produce a certain outcome? Is it being used to silence someone? Um, and that's important for us to understand. But I think in general, we're all going to have to, I don't know if we're all going to have to, I'm saying that's a dramatic, I, I feel like it's important for us to be developing our emotional capacity to allow what is truthful, what is, what, what is transformative to emerge in the spaces that they need to emerge. Hmm. Sydney, I know you have been in rooms with all kinds of people who didn't necessarily share the same values and beliefs, at least at the start. Um, and there have been big feelings in the room. So what are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I mean, I <clears throat> I totally agree um, with everything you said, Prentice. Um, you have to let folks' emotions come. And I appreciate you naming, to the position of facilitator and what our role is in navigating that. Um, uh, because just like you said, if you tamp that down, it's, it, it's performative, right? <clears throat> and so uh, in my time doing process work, I think there's only been one time where I've had to like actually almost close a process because someone literally postured against somebody else, right? Like potential physical harm was going to, to happen. Uh, other than that, I, um, and that one time in a lot of process. Uh, so, so I think there's a, a way in which we can build that container of how we're, how we're going to be in space together. And I think as a facilitator, you're, whole, you're, you're riding the wave of what the energy of the process is bringing, right? With your emotions and body language and all of that stuff sort of happening um, all at the same time. And um, I think when folks are able to un uncap that release and be able to say or feel the things they may have been holding back for a long time, there's this release and opportunity to be like, I got that out. Okay. You know, um, and then there's that idea of what's possible from here. Um, I think one of the things, Adrian, you, you, you pointed to around like the restorative process being like restoring back to something. Um, and it, it's been my experience that I, I actually view restorative process as, as you can't go back. Um, because if you're cut, and you put a healing agent on that, now that skin is different, but it is now stronger than it was before, right? And so I feel like there's a, a myth <laughs> around RJ in that way of like, let's restore back to something. That might be somebody's idea. I'm not saying that that idea doesn't exist, but that's not what I understand restorative process to be. It's about that truth telling, harm and repair, and what's possible from here. I don't, I don't have to skip out this place, linking arms with you and, and singing Kumbaya. I might not really like you still when I'm done with this process, but I might feel differently. I might feel a little lighter. I might feel right in that sense. So um, I think absolutely for emotion and space, it has, to, it has to be. We are a complex, beautiful being, and we have to allow ourselves to get through all of that or or else we're just not, we're not being human when we don't. That's just my idea on that. So, absolutely. Mm. Adrian? Yeah, well, first, I really appreciate that piece around language. It actually feels really tied in because so often I feel like explosions are happening because people are using language but meaning different things, using shit, same language, but meaning very different things by it, right? Um, and I find a lot of conflict is actually misunderstanding that was not clarified where people didn't feel safe to be like, what do you mean? And what are your expectations and, and all of that? Um, I also feel like so often that somatic boom comes from, it's, it's a visualization or a way that we can see that actually a somatic pressure, some pressure, some containing, some trying to push people through, force people to move ahead of where they are or move past harm without addressing it. You know, there's been some pressure that has not been addressed. And the question I ask as the facilitator and as the mediator is, 
is this pressure on that individual? Is this pressure on the whole group? Is this pressure something that the whole group needs to attend to? Or is this actually a pressure that that person is showing us? I can't be in this group yet. I need some other kind of help. And I think what happens is we don't catch that. And then that individual crisis or pressure or something that might be between two people takes the center of the whole group and they issue where a bunch of people who don't even need to be up in it are all up in it because we love to gossip and we love this and we love to know. And I just watched that happen enough times that now so often I'll be like, hold up slow. We do need to stop. We need to get clear on where this goes and get people the right kind of support. Some people come into movement when they really need individual therapy and then they're demanding of movement all the support and healing and time and process that actually deserves private space to be held carefully and gently and slowly. Some people come into movement with things that actually need to be part of an accountability process that then could come back in a different way. So I just think that again, the discernment, um, a third point is we'd have to design for people. I never designed something thinking there's not going to be an explosion. <laughs> uh, to me, it's like there's humans in the room. We're going to explode. It's like something's going to happen. Right now, we are humans living under apocalyptic conditions. So something will change. There will be external crises that come into the room. So designing space and cushion and room for people to emote and ritual and asking the ancestor to hold us and, you know, figure out the right cultural moves to bring spirit and to account for our wholeness in the room. That's our responsibility. Instead of, you know, I think for years I've seen facilitators get mad at humans for humaning up against their agenda. <laughs> and they're like, no, 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 the agenda is the secondary thing. These are a group of people who have to get somewhere. And if your agenda does not actually help them people where if someone is caught up in their emotion, there's someone who can walk out the room with them and let them go at their own pace through what they need to go through while the room is still held at the collective pace. And sometimes we have teams of five to seven people. And I have been in the room when all six other facilitators were out with people having emotions and still there was a collective space being held. So that to me feels like a wisdom that somatics could bring to more movement spaces, co-facilitation, having a squad, having a team. And in the emergent strategy experience, um, one of the things that has been a blessing is we see the unleashing that's possible when you ask a room to bring forward everything they know about healing. So we have been in, in those spaces where we would have a team of like 12 people. And then there'd still be these folks who are like, oh, I happen to be a magical witch healer person. And so I'm handling this whole circle over here or something else. And again, trusting people, we actually all have within us the capacity to heal others. We all have it. And it's been denied, it's been contained, it's been pushed down. But what happens if we unleash it? And I think the somatic level is one of the places where that, when that explosion happens, I think sometimes we'd be amazed at how many people could come in and hold if they were given that permission, just a little bit more room to be like, does anybody here have something to offer, right? Now that can go wrong, but this is how you build trust in a group. 
You know, when you let people show, I'm not just the trauma and harm. I'm also the healer. I'm also someone who, you know, some people are like, I didn't even know I was a healer, but I did this. I do this in my family. I catch people when they're crying. You know, I do this in my church, whatever it is. So yeah, let, letting, inviting more of that. And I find on the front end, this is a dream of mine is to be in movements where we start meetings with access needs, but also healing offers. Here's what I have in my bag. You know, here's my resilience. Here's the strength. You know, I can offer songs if we need that or poems if we need that or other things. So, but here's my healing offers to the room too. So. Mm. Yeah. And I think as we, you know, continue to move away from those kind of, um, you know, uplifted single leader models to this kind of leaderful model where everyone is bringing something, um, where people can, you know, bring their healing forward. And when people can also, you know, lay back and say, today, I'm too tired, it's too much, that that will help us actually, you know, kind of step into this more, create more spaces where we can actually handle the conflict that's going to come. While this podcast is coming to an end, our work in the world is just beginning. Conflict is a part of our worlds and our work of social change. Our call to action for this episode is to enter into discernment. What do you need for generative conflict? Do you need vulnerability, time? What do you need to hold hands while we fight? What are the containers that can hold our conflicts? And for quick links to connect, follow, and learn from Adrian Marie Brown, Prentice Hemphill, and Sydney Morgan, check out our show notes. Shout out to our partners, Faith Matters Network. You can check out their work at faithmattersnetwork.org. Special thanks to DJ Drez for the amazing soundtrack. You can check out his music at djdrez.com and to our executive producer who puts it all together and makes it sound great, Trevor Exter. And thank you all for being here today. You can stay in the know and engaged by subscribing to our free weekly newsletter, Well Read, at citizenwell.org. Citizen Podcast is community-inspired and crowdsourced. That's how we keep it real. Join our community on Patreon for as little as $2 per month so that we can keep doing the work of curating content that matters for communities who care. And don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. And share the love, y'all, by telling your friends to check us out.